World War One was named the war to end all wars. Whether they meant for that to be ironic or not, I have no idea. <laughs> it ended nothing and was one of the most bloody, pointless conflicts that has ever... Well, it is the most bloody, pointless war that has ever happened. In world history, I had mentioned that World War One seemed to be a big playground. Like, that's mine, and that's mine. Don't touch that, and don't harm my friends. <laughs> all those political rivals, and all of this nationalism built up, and it finally just exploded into a bunch of young men sacrificing their lives among trenches in some of the most horrific, harrowing conditions that I've ever read about. And throughout history class, I think everyone is taught how pointless and bloody and terrifying the First World War is. But something a little less covered is the art that came out of the war and the flowers that grew where the trenches used to be. And the poems that they wrote and some of the technology that's going on to save lives even today. So that's what we're going over in this episode. And I kind of have a feeling this episode's not going to be as filled with comedy as normal. Most of the time we got some, like, sprite vibes. I feel like this is going to have some tea or maybe hot cocoa vibes. Yeah. I don't know why that makes sense, but to me it does. So I guess we should start with a little bit a little bit of background as to what was happening during the war the conditions that made this art the conditions yeah the conditions of the trenches and the war oh, in general okay well it was horrible <laughs> to say the least T trench foot was a thing and that's gross and i don't want to cover that anymore <laughs> we'll just say like ankle and above like the inside the trenches I don't- I would not want to be there on a rainy day. Cause like, in the trench, it's mud. And like, water- watery mud. And you're just standing in it, and you're sleeping in it, and it's gross. So what I heard is, you're fighting so much in the trenches, and there's always water, cause it's- it's a trench. So because your feet are always wet, they're never gonna properly dry, and that lets fungus take over the foot, and it infects it so bad that- Ugh. The only hope for your foot is just to remove the entire leg, and so, muddy trenches, people getting their foot cut off. I also have seen a picture of rats that I never expected to see and <laughs> never want to see ever again. They were about the size of rats, and there was at least a hundred of them. Gross. It was nasty. There's also, like, the fighting like just the techniques in general where you just rush out just to get shot yeah the first couple years of the war so we're actually like in this part of the podcast i actually know a little bit of what i'm talking about <gasps> it's crazy wow <laughs> but there was during the beginning this was like them transitioning from cavalry charges and formations and this was like really the first time we started to use modern warfare and started to try to use tanks and planes, but before all this, everyone just kind of has bolt-action rifles, and they kind of just dig a trench, they shoot at each other, they maybe take a couple yards, get pushed back a couple yards, and there's just these stalemates all across Western Europe, just everywhere, just pushing for absolutely nothing, hundreds dying, like, daily. 
I've, it was more than hundreds. It was like thousands a day. Jeez. Died during this war. And you, like, didn't expect to keep friends long in the trenches because you knew that eventually somebody was going to die. So this is where we also first start seeing PTSD, but back then it was called shell shock, and they thought maybe they were just, their head was hit so hard by the ringing, like, bombs that Mm -hmm. it messed something up. But really, we know that this is PTSD because they were living through some of the most horrific moments of human history for months on end. Truly horrible. But some of these soldiers decided to take what was a terrible, terrible moment of their lives, and they tried to make something pretty with it. Like the poppy, if you think about it. Like, okay, horrible conditions, okay? But because of that horrible conditions, those poppies just started to grow. The poppies are really pretty, okay? And this World War One soldier, he was sitting like under a tree. I think he was writing a letter to his family. Um, and he wrote this poem called Flanders Field? Yeah, Flanders Field. And um, it's, it's honestly really cool. And, like, since then, because of this poem, the poppy became, like, a symbol of remembering how brutal World War I was. It's actually really interesting that flowers, like, throughout history have this tendency to become, like, these beautiful symbols that after destruction, like, things can be good again. Because in Hawaii, I do not remember the fire goddess, or the, like, I don't remember her name, so I'm not going to even try to remember But what I remember is that she's, like, the goddess of destruction but also creation and flowers and the reason that they believe this is because in Hawaii there would be these terrible lava pools that would overflow and they'd cascade down these hills and they would just burn stuff and these people saw these destructive events where just this forest was on fire but a couple of years later you would see all these pretty flowers absolutely everywhere and that's because the volcanic ash that had burned everything up previously fertilize the soil and then you have all these pretty trees everywhere and pretty flowers so that's why she's both the goddess of these beautiful flowers but also destruction this also happens up here in alaska with fire weeds i remember after our house burned down i was like eight and whole like bottom half of my childhood home was like destroyed and there was ash and soot like everywhere and we have fire weeds and those grow around where fires had previously been in those very pretty pink flowers that also make really good jam. They also make really good honey. I don't know if you made honey from it. Probably uh, not, but it's I'm really not a, good. I'm not a bee farmer. You crazy? I hate bees. They're scary. But they're cool. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so fire weeds, even in like my life, flowers have been a symbol of, you know terrible moments but like things can still be pretty and as terrible as it is what was making all these poppies grow up was all the dead bodies like you have mortars tilling the soil and mixing it up and bloody messes of people who died and they didn't have enough time to you can't retrieve bodies during shellings so you have hundreds of bodies everywhere and dead animals and dead trees because everything was destroyed to make room for trenches and trench warfare 
So all of that death and decay ended up fueling these poppies. So that's that's why they're so important to remember, like why they're such an important factor in remembering what happened. It's because through brutality, these pretty flowers end up growing. I feel kind of bad though, because I didn't even know that the poppy was a symbol for remembrance of World War One until this unit. But now you do, and now we're spreading the fact that that's what the poppies mean to other people. Fair enough. And like, you know, you gotta learn it at some point, so I guess our point is right now. Also, you mentioned a poem. I did. Um, are you, are you going to read part of that poem? Because I've never heard it. Um, I can. Go let's, ahead. Let's see. Scroll through notes faster. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I'm joking. So the excerpts. You could cut that out. I didn't mean for that to sound so bad. <laughs> I meant to say scrolls through notes faster. Okay. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row. That marker place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt down, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. By John McRae. I think the most, like, powerful bit in that is when he's saying, like, we lived, we felt, down, saw sunsets glow. Like, his, like these were people, too. And now they're dying and they're like passing up their torches to new people. But you could tell this man was definitely in soldier mode. I don't. Was this written before, like during the war or after? Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is during the war, but like on the, the end part of it. Because he says, take up quarrel with the foe. And I think that's like, we're passing the torch down to you. Now go kick some ass. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is still when everyone's like trying to kill each other and before we had like the retrospective of oh my god that was all so pointless yeah the, i'm sh- almost positive that this was during the war but like more towards the end because of you know poppies can't grow if there's not enough bodies <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> that was like really intentionally dark my bad <sighs> but Pretty words and poems are not the only art that was formed during the war. Some of this was physical art that still exists today in museums. Oh yeah, trench art. Like, this, these, okay, if you have the time, seriously, go look up pictures of this stuff. It's really cool. Um, Sometimes it's just like engravings on ammunition shells, like shell casings and like bullet casings. Um, And there's, there's like the engraving stuff and then people have made like physical um not models but like some just just art stuff <laughs> like something that looks reminiscent of a keychain i don't think people would have been making that back then i feel like that's more modern for some reason yeah it's like a bullet surrounded with metal in like a, a keychain like form it's really weird it looks like a charm almost yeah and they have like little models and i think the most striking part is how detailed some of these get like the art that's made from the shells is so detailed and just well done that like you can tell how much time these people had in between 
um, trying not to die in these horrific moments. Like during their downtime, there was nothing more to do and the only objects on hand were, you know, deactivated grenades, shells, and bullets. Uh, yeah. So they would take all their time in their day and just try to make something of all these pieces of lore. And they made really pretty objects. And I think one of like the weirdest parts of it is that all of these shells could have like contained life. Like the shell that you're looking at that is now a piece of art, 100% could have easily taken a life. And now it's the vessel for some like pretty piece of art. And I actually think that's a good way of like memorializing the dead because not all these bodies were retrieved. And I think it's cool that we have you know, the terrible things that was taking lives were created into like memorial objects and just objects that we can look back on and remember. That's a really good message. Okay. I think another really interesting part about this war is just how everyone treated each other because um, people were not used to this style of war. It was usually European powers against uh, less technologically advanced browner people and they would just wipe the floor with them and they were like, glory! And it was not glorious war. It was actually just brutal victory because they had technological advantage and they were colonizing everybody. So everyone thought that this was going to be, that's like the type of war that everyone was used to. They were used to just going into like smaller communities and just destroying because colonization was terrible. Anyway, everyone thought it was going to be like that again, but with their enemies because that's all they were used to. So everyone went into this thinking, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll sign up for the summer, get buff, be home by Christmas. Uh, they weren't home by Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and when that didn't happen, and everybody was like, oh wow, this war is actually terrible. They actually, like, during Christmas, had a ceasefire, and they all walk up to each other, and they just start playing soccer, like, in no man's land, because everyone decided that this was stupid. The opposing teams? Not teams. That's a bad word. And now they were opposing teams. I meant... Yes, opposing forces? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they played soccer together. Oh. They They put down their weapons. They were like, ceasefire. The other side ceased fire for like a couple days during Christmas. And there's pictures of them like playing soccer together in no man's land. It's but kind of cute. I, it's adorable. <laughs> Until you realize that they're surrounded by dead people and like wasted dead lands. Fair enough. That's what I now just realized that that's what my dad was talking about earlier. Yeah. And he was also talking about how, like, the prisoners could sign that contract where they'd be like, yeah, we captured you and that's cool and all, but, like, eh, we don't really need to hold you in prison. Just don't go back and continue warring. And they were like, you know what? Cool. You guys are being nice-ish even though you're trying to kill my people. <laughs> but because you captured me and I got captured fair and square, I will not go back and join the war. And they could just go to the market and just you know, have a semi-normal time-ish. It was like prison vacation. A prison vacation. What a <laughs> way to put that. So that that's some of how they treated each other on opposing sides. Sometimes, sometimes it was horrible, like mustard gas, but... I feel like that's a most of the time, because, you know, it was a war. But that's not the subject matter we're getting to on this <laughs> side of this podcast. It Fair was terrible, enough. and you shouldn't skip over it, but that's just not what we're focusing on. Fair enough. Um, I think the other important thing is just how many advancements came out of the war. I don't know what you know about it, 
I know, like, plastic surgery came from World War One. <laughs> what? Plastic surgery? Explain more. I don't really know how. I can look it up real quick. Um, I think I remember actually seeing something about this. They were, they were like, because of all the bomb shrapnel and bullets and stuff, they ended up losing, like, noses and cheeks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when they went to rejoin society, like, they were like, oh, like, I don't have my face properly how it should be. And they were like, they felt super bad about it because they had, like, these, like, really bad wounds. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded them of the lore. And they just felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. So it's some of these doctors, I think a lot of, like, because there were so many women in the field, like, it's a lot of women who end up pushing these plastic surgery, and they're like, we need to give our soldiers some of their pride back, so they end up making, like, it's not plastic surgery in the way we think of it, where they, mm-hmm. like, graft skin, like, they would take photo. this was actually super advanced for being 19, like, 94. 1914 to 19... I almost said 94. <laughs> I was <laughs> gonna say, what? That is not when the World War happened. So 1914, 1918, they would take pictures of the soldiers from, like... Like, they would, like, bring... They'd be like, hey, go get us some photos of your face from when you were, like... Yeah. When you... Before the war. Mm-hmm. And they'd come back with these photos, and they would look at it, and they would, like, study their faces. Ah! Sorry, I just looked up a picture. That's horrifying. Yeah, that's some of the not as great jobs, but you gotta understand, like, they're... This is, like, at the very beginning. And it looked not as, like, it looked... Their faces were more messed up than that, and that's why they wanted this done. That's true, okay. But what they would do is they would, like, get, like, clay or wood or something, and they would, like, sculpt it to look exactly how your nose looked. Huh. I forget what it was. It was some sort of material. Uh-huh. And they would, like, shape it perfectly to how your face used to look. And then they would place it on you. And it wasn't, like, grafted to your skin like how we do it today. Uh-huh. It was just kind of, like, worn on. And it wasn't, like, connected to you. Mm-hmm. But it, it did end up making, like, a lot of soldiers be like, wow. Like, one of them, one of the quotes that I remember reading about this now. And, like, one of the quotes was, I look in the, like, mirror and I, like, see my, that's me. And is, like, super happy that he looks like himself again. Aww. And it's just really cool that, like, these nurses and stuff ended up develop- developing plastic surgery to, like, give people what their faces used to look like. I'm gonna cry. That's awesome. Don't do that. I'll cry, too. It's <laughs> too late in the night to start crying. <laughs> um, another medical advancement that was, like, a complete accident and ends up saving a ton of lives during the war is penicillin. Because bad lab keeping habits apparently can save billions of lives. Penicillin should probably not have been invented. Really? <laughs> it was really stupid. Mm-hmm. What they ended up doing is um, this chemist was looking at how he was looking at how bacteria grow in petri dishes, and he was just like, a really messy person. So like he leaves his petri dishes out and he like goes on vacation or something he leaves for a couple days and he comes back and is looking in one of his petri dishes and he'd been gone long enough for mold to mm-hmm. start growing in the dish like common like bread mold mm-hmm. and it's not the same as bread mold but it's similar i think 
I don't know much about penicillin, but I know this much about the story. Mm-hmm. He looks at it, and he sees, like, the liquid that the fungus is producing mm-hmm. is actively killing bacteria colonies. And he's like, oh my god, this fungus is killing bacteria. So so he figures out what antibody it's, like, creating, or he doesn't figure out what it is because we're not that advanced yet, but he, he figures out how to get penicillin to mm. replicate this antibody and then he collects that antibody and that's what they start putting on like wounds and stuff and giving patients because it lets them produce like introduce it to their bloodstream Interesting. so they have these antibodies killing bacteria or whatever and so we really shouldn't have figured out how penicillin works because normal procedures to clean up after your experiments so this was a complete and utter accident, <laughs> but it's an accident that ends up saving millions of lives throughout the war, because, like, you could get shot and survive, but if you were infected and before penicillin, like, it's just, like, you cut it off and try to live, but chances aren't wonderful, huh. but after penicillin, it gives a lot of people, like, a fighting chance, <laughs> and actually, so if you're, that's why so many people are allergic to penicillin, I'm actually allergic to penicillin. It's because it's a fungus, and your body isn't supposed to like fungus stuff, so it rejects it. That's why it's so common to be allergic to penicillin. Yeah. I'm actually allergic to amoxicillin, but I think a penicillin, penicillin and amoxicillin are like in the same family, aren't they? I just know that psyllin just comes from like mycelium, which is something to do with mushrooms. I don't know that much about Latin. So I just know it's a fungal type, but it's not the same as penicillin, because I think penicillin is, like, more specific to that breed. I'm not really sure. I don't know. I I would have to do more research, and it is too late in the night to go down into that rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, Another crazy advancement that comes from this war is radio. I actually built a radio. They're... You built a radio? Okay, I didn't fully build it. It was a kit. One of my mom's friends was getting me into electronics and computer programming, which is how I ended up joining nuclear um, with the Navy. (laughs) Oh my god. So yeah, if you don't want your kids to go into the Navy for nuclear stuff, don't give them radio kits. That's the lesson of this episode. I'm kidding. It was actually a wonderful kit. It had like a bunch of transistors and resistors and antenna bits and batteries and basically just showed you how to make like a basic transistor radio so even before the war people are starting to realize how cool radio is Uh and then the war just like spurs radio forward into the main like it gets advanced a lot quicker because the soldiers realize how like useful it is to communicate Uh you know without pigeons Fair enough. So they end up sending radios like back and forth, and radio becomes a band item to prisoners is one of the things. But they'd still build them mm-hmm. with like confiscated stuff because radios are easy to build, like I said. So, and after the war, radio kind of becomes the internet of the twenties, like news broadcasts, music. I don't know if they had talk shows back then. I'm sure they did. I mean, I probably, I can't think of why they wouldn't. Yeah. And, like, reading out, like, books and stuff, I'm pretty sure that was a thing. 
and it's just like a place to get a bunch of information. You tune into your radio station all the time, and it like was a way to spread information. And if you look at the development of the internet and radio, they marry each other pretty well. Not perfectly, obviously, because the internet's a lot more advanced. But it's really interesting how radio and the internet are so connected to war. Strangely enough, I think of like YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it was it was nineteen twenties YouTube. <laughs> it was the exact same thing. To, not the exact, obviously, but, pretty but close. it was very similar for them. That, that's what it was like. It was like the birth of the internet. The internet also has um, connections to DARPA, which is like that happens during the Cold War, I think. Yeah. DARPA. DARPA. It's DARPA. I forget what it stands for, but they end up developing like a bunch of rope that's who makes all the robotic stuff and like those dog videos that you see of those like robotic dogs oh. getting kicked oh what <laughs> they need to balance test them so they just kind of mm, kick them. <laughs> what a job <laughs> hey i need you to hit this robot with a stick for eight hours and just <laughs> test it i would love that job <laughs> but yeah so darpa also has ties to the military but we're talking about world war one and so many things have um, ties to the military. I also see that Dazzle Camo. Oh yeah. Is in your notes. My those shoes that you see me wear, those things. That's what they remind me. I like how you of. said "see me wear" like you were addressing the audience as if the audience has all seen those shoes. What do your shoes look like? <laughs> like Dazzle Camo, like black and white, in a in an obnoxious pattern. Do you know why Dazzle Camo looks the way it does? Something about going too fast underwater and just or just going too fast that you can't see it. Okay. I know a bit about the subject too, because Navy. Uh-huh. So Dazzle Camo is a bunch of weird black and white shapes that they paint on the ships. And it's so that when you're looking at the ship, like your eyeball is like, what the heck is going on? And it's really hard to like pick a spot on the ship to track because mm -hmm. it's just looking real weird so you can't really the idea is they miscalculate how fast your ship's going mm -hmm. when they shoot ahead of you or behind you and it it actually worked oh <laughs> so they would see these ships moving and they'd be like oh it looks like it's moving about 30 miles per hour it was actually going like 40 or something or like 20 uh -huh. know, either way i don't it just depends on the day and whoever's looking at it i guess uh-huh and they would calculate the trajectory on their little scratch pad because before calculator was a big thing and they like scratch down and aim the torpedoes and they fire and they just completely miss they're like what are you doing private whatever and <laughs> they would miss and it was it was navy camo now we just have um gray ships because technology is a lot more advanced and it's it's called navy gray and it's supposed to blend in with the horizon in the ocean, but that's uh, like uh, gray ships sound like they stick out on the ocean, not gonna lie. Yeah, that's true. Also, I imagine you know more about this one than I do, because there's two exclamation points there. Uh, dogs! Eh, I don't really know much about it. I was just like, dogs in World War One. What did he do? So, they, they, they were used as like a, a form of communication. Like a pigeon, but a with four legs. <laughs> Instead of two. And, and wings. 
<laughs> the original Twitter. The original Twitter. Okay. I actually, I wonder if that's why. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty. That, that's gotta be that, why. That they, has to be why. Why else would they call it Twitter? Fair enough. You know what I think of when I think of messages, birds, like. Bird. <laughs> no. It had to be. Yeah. World War One based <laughs> carrier pigeons. We'll look into that later. Oh. Dogs also were used to chase rats out of trenches. Like cats, but significantly cooler. Of, of course. <gasps> They're pigeon cat horses. Pigeon cat horses. Oh yeah, the dogs would also like carry supplies. Yeah, like medical supplies and just things that people need during times of war. Mm -hmm. I imagine ammunition too. So, they're a versatile animal. The, the war dog, the, the the cat bird horse. The cat bird horse. The cat bird horse. Also known as the war pupper. The war pupper. <laughs> There's a case in World War II where, like, the Russians trained a bear to carry ammunition. That's insane. And they also give it, like, a rank and title. And it's... <laughs> I, animals in war is hilarious. Yeah. It's also a little terrible, but it's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Also, uh, one of the last things that I want to talk about, because I realize we're hitting our 30-minute-ish mark. I don't, we don't really have an official time. We just kind of go until 30-ish. Yeah. Um, equal rights movement and women's rights. Oh, yeah. That happened. It did. How did World War One affect those movements? Well, like, um... It was it was encouraged. I did actually in English when we were um, reading about. You did in English. Shush. <laughs> I think you need to go back and do another English. <laughs> okay, okay. In English class, when we were reading All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a book about World War One. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I like teared up just going over the summary of that book. It's so sad. Oh my goodness. But. Um, we had to do, like, a project associated with it, and, um, I believe, I don't think I wrote an essay about women's rights, but I did something like that, and, um, like, the government encouraged, like, women who stayed at home to get jobs, like, for, because all of the men were out fighting in the war, and there was nobody to stay, like, no one was doing, like, the factory work and stuff, so, like, the government was like, hey, you should, you should, you should go work. Um, and that's where, like, the iconic, um, shoot, what's her face? Rosie the Riveter. Yes. I thought she comes from World War Two. Oh, is she? I, I mean, the art style that she's drawn in reminds me of World War Two a lot more than World War One, but I'd have to look into it. I think Rosie the Riveter is... Oh, are we looking it up live right now on podcast? You better hurry. I am. They're on the edge of their seats. How fast can you type? You're bragging about that 50 words per minute typing time. Whoops. Come on, you got this. It's in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Punk. Dang, I thought that was from, wait, All Quiet on the Western Front is World War II. Yeah. Look at me being just a smart person. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I don't know what I, I was talking about. I don't know how I didn't catch that All Quiet on... Is it... No. All Quiet on the Western Front is a World War One book. What is going on in my brain? <laughs> I know that because 
when they're going over the summary, it's talking about how those kids thought that everyone was going to be home by Christmas, and I just remember that that line is connected to World War One. That book is World War One. Okay. But it's kind of cool to see that, like, actually, I don't know if it's good or bad, that, like, every time we have a war, mm-hmm. women get more rights. <laughs> it shouldn't take It shouldn't take a war to give women rights, but... It's nice to see that they get some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though it's like, go work in the factory because our boys are getting shot at. Like, <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Why couldn't we just, you know, give them more rights during peacetime? But whatever. I guess I'm just one of those crazy radicals. I guess so. God, crazy. Um, and I guess the last point on here is the U.S. becoming a power. Oh, yeah. How does that end up happening? I think... I think... I I think it's the fact that the war... Because we're not totally involved in, like, the war very much. Like, we just kind of come in during the very tail end to be like, Guys, we did it! (laughs) What's up? We, like, go to collect our participation trophy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Americans did some fighting and we should remember those lives too but it's yeah. kind of funny that we just come in during the end and everyone's like hey why don't you join us we're like fine okay yeah all right hi <laughs> and then um because we're not totally involved and wartime economy like boosts us up like that's where we get the roaring 20s because everyone's like man we just like just did a solid job in that war that we spent like less than a year in yeah. i don't actually remember i think it's I'm pretty sure it's not It's I don't remember It's not less than a year I don't think Really? Is it less than a year? No clue Are you looking this up live? Yep You better hurry They're on their seats It's not fair My screen is broken (laughs) (laughs) Can't keep them waiting Come on now Uh, Don't be rude It's our podcast We can do what we want I'm gonna leave this unedited How long was (laughs) Was America in World War One. This is so dumb. They could just do this, this is so at dumb. home. Probably. Uh, three years. Okay, nearly three years. Never mind. I, I was totally it was, wrong. I, I thought, thought we were in like there for two. way less. I thought we were in there for like two. Never mind. We did some stuff. We <laughs> learned things. Yeah, look, we're learning right alongside you. Wow, how nice. What other podcast does that? <laughs> I can't think Pro- of one. Probably more organized ones. <laughs> Probably less organized ones. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, we like wartime economy boosts us up, and then like we're just like partying, uh-huh. and like they're like, "Hey guys, don't drink alcohol, please." And we're like, "Yeah, sure, we won't do that." <laughs> and then they start drinking late at night and having parties, and it's like where you get clubbing. Someone's uh-huh. going to like cocktail clubs and just listening to jazz while drinking their I don't nineteen twenties drinks. And the girls are showing their ankles. Wow, and scandalous. And it's just a crazy time. Wow. And then we get Al Capone. World War One helped create Al Capone. Who's that? Don't look at me like that. Who is Al Capone? You know what? That's for another podcast. Okay. When you get into Prohibition, we're doing Al Capone. I can't believe you don't know who it is. Shush. Anyway, that's for another time. <laughs> and right now... I want to go to bed. <laughs> Fair enough. You're closing them out? I don't know how to do this. Yeah, I'll figure it out and go to bed. Um, bye, guys. <laughs> See you. <laughs> <laughs>
Oreo shopping. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>